Australian advertisement data suggests 95% of feature talent on major locally produced advertisements are white. Online retail sales revenue remains flat for yet another month in Australia. And Google and Amazon remain firmly in the FTC's crosshairs as antitrust proceedings kick off in the United States. I'm Ben Shepard, and you're listening to Signal. Thank you for joining us. It's October 1, recording this at 10.05 p.m. Uh, Hope you've had a good week. I had a pretty good one. I got along to the NBL on Thursday, saw Melbourne United play South East Melbourne Phoenix, and they won, which was great. Uh, Full house, awesome, really great game. Uh, so the NBL is absolutely back. So it was good to see it um, come back so strong. Uh, also watched uh, Alex Saar today in the Wildcats game, and he looked great as well. So really good first week of basketball. Um, there was also a pretty big football game on in Melbourne on Saturday. Um, congratulations to any Collingwood supporters and commiserations to any Lions supporters. Uh, but we're not here to talk sports. We're here to talk marketing and advertising. Uh, and as usual, we have three signals this week. Uh, it's a bit of a condensed episode. It's a long weekend or it has been a long weekend in Melbourne. It's a long weekend in other parts of Australia uh, tomorrow. So given that, I thought I'd try and trim it down a little bit this week, uh, give people still three things to think about, talk about. Uh, but give them back a bit of time to, I don't know, do other stuff. First thing we're going to talk about uh, was inspired by a post I saw on LinkedIn uh, by a fellow named Sean Lohman. Now, he is the founder of Agile Media, which is a really interesting uh, technology uh, slash media effectiveness business um, that's based in Queensland. He had scanned or he had had the Agile software look at a whole bunch of different locally produced um, Australian advertisements that had run during September of this year to get an understanding of um, the diversity of talent. Uh, And the findings that he um, published on LinkedIn were really interesting. So I'll go into those um, as well as some other things that have been done in the area of um, diversity in advertising and representation. Second area is around e-commerce sales. Now, this is a relatively... Um, regular theme on Signal is the, I guess, the challenge of, of, of being an online retailer in Australia uh, across you know, managing costs, managing marketing costs, uh, increasing sales, all those different things. The ABS released their full um, July data uh, just recently. And what we basically saw was um, year on year for July, uh, online retail sales were flat. Um, and the previous July in 2022, they were also flat. Uh, so what you're seeing there is two years of flatness. So you had a really big bump during COVID, and then now you're seeing a really, um, a really sort of pronounced flattening out. So we'll go into that to try and talk about what that means. Lastly, there's some antitrust cases in the US that the Federal Trade Commission is pursuing that I think have some pretty important implications for marketing and advertising. So these involve Amazon and Google. Uh, they're sort of of the same thread around um, anti-competitive behavior um, and sort of alleged breaches of antitrust legislation. Now, these are alleged um, breaches. There's no um, proven case that's been made, and these cases are ongoing. But 
advertising and um, market power is absolutely central to both of those. So I'll explain what they mean, uh, what to look out for. Now, antitrust cases uh, have a relatively, especially in technology, have a relatively low rate of success. But I would say these two, especially the Google one, are probably the most important ones I've seen since the Microsoft browser antitrust proceedings that occurred in the late 90s, uh, which were all around Microsoft trying to shut down uh, the innovation that was the Netscape browser. Now, Microsoft was unsuccessful uh, in that. And a lot of people and a lot of documentaries and historians have said that that ruling sort of really opened up the web um, for innovation and kind of sparked a whole bunch of new, really interesting businesses, including Google, for one. Uh, so I think there's some interesting things to look out for with this um, and to be across. So there are three areas. Uh, let's get straight into them. All right, signal number one uh, was, as I said earlier, it was inspired by something I saw on LinkedIn. Um, Sean Lohman is a guy I follow on LinkedIn. He's the founder uh, and I think MD or CEO, apologies, Sean, if I get that incorrect, um, of Agile Media. Now, Agile do a bunch of uh, really interesting work around the sort of effectiveness, recall, um, presence, position, quality, et cetera, of a whole bunch of sort of screen-based adver advertisements. And they have a really, really strong um, sort of software platform that allows marketers to get a really, really, really good view um, of, of where ads are running, concurrent to what. They do a bunch of stuff around sponsorship. It's, it's hard to sort of do it justice. It probably deserves its own topic, but it's a really interesting um, Australian business um, that is absolutely on the up. Um, and being used by a ton of agencies, a ton of marketers. So Sean, when he, I guess, when he speaks, uh, he generally speaks about stuff that's really interesting. Um, and I've followed him for a while to get a really good handle on on what they're doing around effectiveness and, and return on investment. But in the lead up to the referendum here in Australia, he had posted a screen grab from the um, Agile platform um, looking at the diversity of actors in Australian advertising. Now, he'd looked at or the platform had looked at the most frequently seen advertisements on television in Australia for September of 2023, and it had categorised these into Australian produced and internationally produced. And the findings were really interesting. Uh, what he found or what they found was 95% of featured talent on Australian produced ads were white. Um, for non-Australian produced ads, this figure was 75%. And overall, 86% of all ads on Australian TV, in terms of those that are most frequently seen, featured white talent. Now, in the image or the table that Sean posted, uh, it had a, a line indicating the uh, ratio of the white population. The white population, uh, according to this data, is 75%. So the delta is pretty significant. There's a 20 percentage points delta between Australian-produced ads um, and uh, the white population in Australia. For internationally-produced ads, it's about where it sits. So 75% uh, of talent is white, 75% of the population, um, according to Sean's data, is white. So pretty confronting 
not a whole lot to sort of analyze on this, but I guess it does show um, that there is still a bit of a way to go, especially around representation of talent in advertisements. And I would probably argue, and I don't have anything to support this, but I think we'd probably be in a similar position when it came to representation on commercial television, streaming services, uh, et cetera, et cetera, based on either Australian produced or internationally produced. So as an industry, I think we've done a reasonable job of raising awareness of the importance of representation. Uh, but the data suggests that we, we probably have a bit more to go and we probably need to, myself included, be a little bit more cognizant of just exactly what is showing up and what we are putting in content. Now, there's some really interesting initiatives, and I don't think people are sitting on their hands in this. I just think we've got a fair way to go between where we have been and where I think the industry wants to go. There's an initiative by the Advertising Council of Australia called Create Space, um, which has been an industry-led project across a whole bunch of things from talent on accounts to um, representation in um, content and advertisements to just a whole bunch of different areas that have acknowledged what they had found in surveys and research around the industry not being as inclusive uh, or as um, welcoming as perhaps other industries are. Uh, so Create Space, I think, was an idea for the industry to basically acknowledge and confront some of these challenges and then put concrete steps in play. Now, these are all publicly available, and I think I applaud the ACA and Create Space for doing that because they're in a position where they're effectively putting out in the public um, the level of accountability they want to be held to. There's also a really interesting study uh, in the United States led by a business called System One. Uh, many of you who are in the sort of effectiveness nerds like me um, would be aware of System One and the work that they do. But they've done a project in the US called Feeling Seen. And Feeling Seen showed that ads that made an explicit commitment to diversity performed far better with the general population than those that didn't. And the Feeling Seen initiative basically was all um, aimed at arming industry advertising professionals in a way of concretely fixing this or improving this situation. The agile data, I think, is something that needs to be seen. It needs to be aired. Uh, and and I'd seen Sean's posts and reached out to him and said, look, I want to cover this on the podcast. I don't know what the answer is off the top of my head, but I think understanding the information is a really good first start. And once you understand how probably far the default is off, you can you can make better choices around what, what things look like. So thank you, Sean, for sharing that. Uh, if anyone wants to see either the Create Space initiative and the materials behind that or the System One Feeling Seen information, there will be links to both in the show notes. And if anyone has any comments or questions on this area or ways that they are handling it professionally or their views as a, as a consumer, uh, please, please email them to me. I'd love to air those um, and really start a discussion about this. All right, signal number two is on one of my favorite areas 
of discussion, which is online retail sales. So the ABS uh, release a bunch of data every month, uh, and they release a whole bunch of sort of trade and um, economic data. And one of the things that this includes is online retail sales. So they have just released the August... Uh, what would be the word I would use? Anyway, it's, it's basically the August uh, uh, retail data minus online sales. And then what they do is sort of a couple of weeks later, three, four weeks later, they update it with the online um, retail sales. So this means the most recent online retail sales data is from July. Uh, and that just came out. Now, the news in a nutshell is that retail sales online for July were flat in comparison to the July period in 2022. Now, we had seen some small increases uh, throughout the year month on month compared to 22, but these had really started to flatten out. Uh, And if you compare 23 uh, July, basically we're at the same level we were in July in 2021. So what you really saw is in with online sales, you saw this really massive bump during the first four to five months of COVID. But since then, it's really leveled off. Uh, and growth has gone from you know, mega double digits, 30, 40, 50% to mid single digits to zero. Uh, so what you're seeing is uh, a relatively kind of big slowdown. Um, and Ultimately, you're seeing that it's, it is really, really difficult to be a retailer right now. Um, the thing that's interesting, I guess, for me is the US market's not entirely dissimilar to the Australian market. So it's not like we are more lethargic than our sort of nearest analog. However, what is different between the US market and the Australian market is that they are significantly further ahead than we are when it comes to percentage of sales that are transacted online for retail. So where we sit overall is around 10 to 11% of total. This is grocery plus non-food. So grocery sits at about 6% and then non-food discretionary sits at about 16% is sort of like fluctuated, got up to as much as 25% in the middle of 2021 but it's sitting at about 16 right now. So overall, you're looking at that 10 to 11. Now, it's, it's stayed at that level since really ultimately March of, of, of um, 2020. It's been, like, like I said before, a few little blips, but on the whole, it's relatively flat. Uh, so online sales really just sort of moved up and down in line with total sales. And even in that sort of post-COVID getting out of lockdown period, Uh, You saw physical sales actually increasing at a higher level. Now, in the United States, they're sitting at about 16% of total retail sales, which is five percentage points higher than Australia. Now, when COVID hit there, they were sitting at around 10. So they were about where we are now when COVID hit. Now, they have differences in terms of non-discretionary or or uh, non-food uh, and food. But in the US, a big, big difference is that grocery, online grocery purchasing is much higher than it is here. 
and online grocery um, as a ratio in Australia has stayed, again, relatively flat. If you look back to, say, July in 19, it was sitting at about 3.5%, and now it's sitting at about 5.56%. So, yes, there's been some growth, but it hasn't been stratospheric. Uh, and I think that probably comes down to the fact that profitable online grocery is really difficult. Now, then there's two things that make it, well, three things that make it difficult. Uh, the first one is, is collating a shop uh, takes time. Uh, it would take about an hour for me to do a normal shop. Uh, it would, and, and in most cases, you see as you go around the Coles or Woolworths, most of this is, hasn't been automated. There's still a human collating the materials. The second one is the perishability of the products means they need to be um, taken off shelf and shipped or delivered relatively quickly. Uh, there's refrigeration costs, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And the third part is just the logistics of transport and the cost involved in that mean that when you add all these things above the cost of the products, uh, it becomes uh, quite expensive unless you have a really high premium on there. Now, what the US has got right, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether the scale of the of the country allows them to to do this in a way that's easier than Australia, but online grocery has proven really, really difficult um, for businesses here. Now, the the client implication for this is, is is kind of mixed, right? So online retail sales competition is is really hot at the moment. Uh, the lack of growth means that everybody is fighting over sort of the same levels of existing demand. The demand's not going up. But the appetite for demand is is as hot as ever. Now, in my view, the brands that are likely to win over this sort of flattish demand period, the next six to twelve months, and generate profitable growth, and it's really important to to point that out. It's profitable growth that means you are making proper proper profit after costs, and that includes all costs, including marketing costs. So the stronger brands that have more salience with the category buyer will win. Those that don't will ultimately be forced to fight it out over this flat existing demand. Now, most of this demand is, is funneling through Google. Uh, some of it is funneling through things like Meta. Um, but ultimately, whoever pays those two businesses more and more is likely to win the bids and drive the traffic. But the challenge here is that the more that you pay to win the bids, the more that you pay to, to get that traffic up in the absence of any organic growth, the more it impacts your cost base and the more you are faced with, with two requirements, right? You either pass it on to the consumer who is highly unlikely to pay when they're already stretched or you absorb it yourself. Uh, and if you're not breaking even or you're not making a profit, this is going to hit bottom line even more. So it's a really tough time and I think it's a really good time to sort of reset and consider the, the role of brands and the strength of brands in terms of what they provide as a, as a protection for this. Because you can see with retailers in particular, those with really, really strong brands, especially brands that have been developed over sort of omni-channel operations that have physical reminders all over the country, uh, they generally spend significantly less money in traffic generation and demand fulfillment than those other businesses that don't have the same levels of brand. Now, I think that's a big advantage in a good economy. It's a huge advantage in a bad economy. So we'll keep an eye on these sales. But right now, they're suggesting exactly what we thought. Everything's looking relatively flat. It's a tough market. And those that are going to win 
are really going to have the brands that stand out in the consumers' minds. Signal number three for this week is around antitrust. Uh, not the most exciting topic, hence why it was left to uh, number three, but really, really important. So both Google and Amazon are currently subject to antitrust proceedings from the United States Federal Trade Commission. Now, as I touched on earlier, this is probably, especially the Alphabet or Google one, is probably the most significant technology-based antitrust action since the Microsoft hearings in the late 90s. Uh and, and I think the implications of it and what comes out of it are going to be really interesting. So a lot of the times with these sorts of cases, um, they generally don't resolve. There's not a whole lot of action taken. But in the proceedings and the activity that takes place and the evidence that gets presented, you get a really good understanding of how businesses run and you get a really good understanding of how business views competition um, so it must be pointed out here, there is zero proof of any illegality from either Amazon or Google. These are cases that are currently being heard. Now, if you want to look up any information on these, uh, there's a lot of information on the FTC website. Uh, there's a lot of evidence and um, information that's been put in front of this committee. A lot of it's been redacted, so it's not super useful. Um, but a lot is coming out. There's a lot of reporting on it. So I would, if I was you, set up some alerts um, on both of these areas. But I'll go into what they mean, why I think they matter, and, and some of the implications. But I'll touch first on Amazon. So Amazon's uh, case with the FTC uh, is an interesting one because it's multifaceted. So I'm just looking now at the uh, release on this but basically the ftc has sued amazon alleging that the online retail and technology company is a monopolist that uses a set of interlocking anti-competitive and unfair strategies to illegally maintain its monopoly power the ftc and its state partners say amazon's actions allow it to stop rivals and sellers from lowering prices they degrade the quality for shoppers they overcharge sellers stifle innovation and present prevent rivals from fairly competing against Amazon. Pretty heavy words there. Um, now, there's more detail as you sort of go down. So there's what they're calling is it's anti-competitive conduct in two different markets. Uh, so one is the online superstore market, the Amazon.com, that serves what they say serves shoppers. Uh, and the second one is the market for online marketplace services that are purchased by sellers. So area one they talk about is the punishing of sellers for, for discounting, so anti-discounting measures that punish sellers and deter other online retailers from offering lower prices than Amazon, which uh, they believe keep prices higher for products across the internet. The second one is the conditioning of sellers' ability to obtain prime eligibility for their products, which is a, what they say is, quote, a virtual necessity for doing business on Amazon. Uh, on, and they pass this on to sellers that uses, quote, Amazon's costly fulfillment service, which has made it substantially more expensive for sellers on Amazon to also offer the products on other platforms. They then say that this coercion has in turn limited competitors' ability to compete with Amazon. 
Now, the second area they look at is the uh, marketplace services market where they say, quote, Amazon extracts enormous monopoly rents from everyone within its reach, including, quote, degrading the customer experience by replacing relevant organic search results with paid advertisements. Second part, biasing Amazon search results to preference Amazon's own products over ones that Amazon knows are of better quality. And then third was charging costly fees on the hundreds of thousands of sellers that currently have no choice but to rely on Amazon to stay in business. So pretty heavy um, allegations. Um, Some things that are Amazon specific in relation to this, but also I think internet specific. So uh, the replacement of relevant organic search results with paid advertisements is not Amazon specific. It is happening on almost every retailer's website right now. uh, And it's happened across search for almost two decades. Um, That is, I think, a legitimate consumer issue. Um, the biasing of search results to preference own products over ones that Amazon knows are a better quality. Um, again, I think Google has been um, alleged on this, uh, never really been proven because it's 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 a tough subjectivity to work out whether something is of, of better quality. Um, and I think the fees that Amazon is charging uh, as well, um, they allege that some Sellers are paying 50% of total revenues to Amazon. They believe these fees harm not only sellers, but also shoppers who pay more um, as a result of businesses trying to recoup these. Um, So that's the Amazon case. Uh, There is an advertisement element there. Amazon has a massive ad business. So this is pretty significant when you think about um, that money is coming on the whole from. uh, basically su- supply businesses or people that sell through Amazon. So you've built a business that's gone from zero to, let's say, conservative estimate, $40 billion. Uh, that money has come from somewhere and that money's got to be collect- collected from somewhere. So uh, if you're a retailer, it's unlikely you're in a position, again, just to absorb that. So FTC's argument kind of is by extracting this money, um, what you're doing is effectively making things more expensive for consumers because uh, these things have to be recouped or you're making it really difficult for others to compete um, because there's two different sets of rules. So let's have a look and see what happens on that. Um, I'll put a link to the FTC um, uh, information (laughs) in the show notes. Now, the second one is is Google. Um, Google basically is being... Um, pursued due to what the FTC thinks is is unwieldy access um, on sort of setting uh, maintaining its its search monopoly. So it comes down to um, basically using its its monetary means as well as its status as the dominant internet search engine to shut out rivals and stifle competition. Um, so it's not an innovation-led thing. It's, it's not saying it's, it's not okay to be successful. It's not okay to be innovative. Um, they're basically looking at, okay, so is it difficult for any emerging search engine to compete with Google? Now, what they would will talk about is, is Google has default, default on Android, has default on Chrome. 
it has default on a whole bunch of, of different um, electronics devices. It has default on Apple iOS, has default on Safari. So it's pretty impossible if you're an emergent search engine to get any kind of consumer foothold. Um, and I think that's what uh, the, the FTC is really starting to look at. On the other hand of this is right now the Google search product is significantly better than anything else that's out there. So the argument Google would make is, well, um, one, people can change if they want to, uh, and two is um, these things are the default on things like Apple devices because it is the best. Um, so it's an interesting one. Um, the thing that I think will be really uh, looked at closely in this case is the fees that Google pays Apple to maintain um, default search dominance on the iPhone and Safari. Uh, it's a significant sum of money. It's in the vicinity of 15 billion US dollars. It's clean, clear, no margin <laughs> cash to taking 100, 100 cents in the dollar. And reports are it makes up between 15 and 20% of Apple's operating profit. So it's a significant payment. Uh, it's probably a fair payment, to be honest. Um, but the, the questions that, that may be asked, and there's been reports that have been tabling in the last week, is that Apple um, has shown a history of competing directly with Google in specific areas as the iPhone has evolved, but it has never looked to compete on search. Now, there's a report I uh, saw on Bloomberg last week suggesting that Microsoft and Apple had very early discussions about Apple either investing in or buying Bing and turning into an Apple search engine or using the, the, the foundation of, of, of the technology to do that. Uh, but I think the, the discussion that I'm seeing online and, and in stories is it's a pretty big thing to walk away from if someone's paying you $15 billion a year. Um, to compete. Now, on the other flip side or the other side of things is Google has around 90% share of search and for advertisers, there really is no competition. So uh, in that sense, um, there's a very strong reason why they seek to, to, to buy distribution on these devices. Um, it's a, I'm not sure where I sit on this. I think the Google products um, are used by people because they are really good. I think their advertising product is good. Um, and I think the information they have on users that users hand over is, is really strong. So um, I don't see a, a, a huge um, kind of viable alternative um, having used things like DuckDuckGo, having used things like Bing, they're just not as strong. Now, on the other hand, what you could say is, well, they're probably not as strong because they can't throw, can't throw the means um, behind the development that a company like Google can. So, and again, it's really hard to argue because are they just simply better <laughs> at execution and delivery or, or is there something more nefarious to it? Um, I don't know, but uh, and it's, it's well above uh, my knowledge of, of the law. So still be one to look at but 
like I said, both these cases have implications um, and I think of in, an interest to advertisers. So the FTC must prove that both Amazon and Google in their respective cases are performing actions that harm competition and result in either reduced choice to consumers um, or to other businesses or increased cost to consumers or other businesses unfairly. So the Amazon case is attempting to argue that the fees that Amazon charges result in high consumer costs as these additional costs fulfilled by Amazon, Amazon search ads, et cetera, et cetera, have to be passed on to the consumer. Now, in my view, like I said, the same argument could be made for Google. It occupies a dominant position in search, is under no real cost per click direct competitive pressure on keyword targeting, which then means that for some businesses they are having to pay, and I touched on this before, um, money to buy demand that you could say that they have fairly earned before that person has come to Google. Um, so there was a story last week around, uh, quote, price manipulation um, actions where Google had raised the prices of some auctions by 5% without telling um, the bidders and the advertisers. There was a corresponding story in one of the advertising journals saying that it could be more like 100%, according to some insiders, but these people weren't quoted. Um, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. But the cost of search and inflation of that channel has been significant. Um, and no one could, could question that the if you look back on uh, what most businesses were paying for similar search terms, say, five, six years ago and compare it to now, it's significantly more expensive than it used to be. Um, so that is, I guess, a com competitive implication. Again, is it anti-competitive? I, I don't think it is. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, one, what the FTC comes up with, two, what information comes out as a result. We had one or two weeks. We've seen some really interesting things that have been talked about um, as they um, you know, speak to witnesses and, and speak to experts. Uh, and it will also be interesting to see whether there is any kind of proactive um, rollback or, or change uh, in the way that that Google advertising businesses run or whether it allows them to sort of double down and continue running the same way. Now, same with Amazon, really big business, um, bigger than I think most uh, anti-competitive legislation is suited to rule on uh, and much bigger than anything that's come before it. So these are really uncharted waters for most of us, um, and that makes them really interesting uh, things to keep keep on top of. That's it for this week. I said earlier that it was going to be a short episode, and as I've been recording, I've realized that it's really not. So uh, apologies, but hopefully if you made it this far, uh, it was all right. Uh, if you have any feedback or questions, I'd uh, love to read them or hear them. Uh, email me, ben at bensheppard.au. Uh, the newsletter is available on LinkedIn. Um, it's the same three areas, but just given a bit more detail, a few more tables, information, links, etc. So if you want to get on that, you can subscribe on LinkedIn. And every Sunday slash Monday that gets sent out. So get on that if you'd like. Uh, rate and review if you have enjoyed this. Um, all ratings and reviews are, are treated uh, 
very kindly. So uh, any any um, feedback, like I said earlier, is, is welcome. Um, thank you for listening. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And I will see everybody next Sunday. Have a great week.